Amen and glory, hallelujah to the God who changed our lives. Can you say amen to that? Amen. We have so much to be thankful for uh, that God chose to send His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross so that we could be born again. I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 uh, this morning. Um, this, over the next few weeks, I, I want us to look at the subject of, of marriage, the subject of the family. And as I prayed through this many months ago and decided I was going to, um, that the Lord had led me to preach on this topic at this time of year, um, there was a lot of reasons why I felt like God had led me in this direction. Number one, because marriage is the first institution ever created by God. Uh, the first institution created by God was not a church, it was not a nation, it was not a government or a corporation, it was a family. And so therefore we must... Remember that a healthy church, a healthy nation, is founded on healthy families. That we must be God-honoring families. I believe we must think about, talk about marriage in the church because marriage is the foundation of our society. The goodness, the wholeness, the health of our country depends upon the wholeness, the health of our homes and of our families. I believe we must look at the, the topic of marriage in the church because we see that marriage constantly comes under attack. It's come under attack legally. It's come under attack morally. I would say it's come under attack relationally. And I would say that because of all that, we see that the, that, that the family is, is falling apart. I don't think you need me to share with you a bunch of statistics on divorce and see how the divorce rate is continually on the rise um, I believe that is directly connected to the fact that the crime rate is continually on the rise because homes are at rest and children do not grow up with, with, with dads and moms both in the homes. We can see how cohabitation has constantly risen because I believe there's a generation of people that have given up on marriage. They've given up on God's ideal and they've become in disillusioned and they've abandoned it. And so we must, as a church, think about, talk about, pray about, consider what the Word of God says about the family. And about the home. You know, I, I figured something out a couple weeks ago. Um, it was about 12.30 in the middle of the night. And, uh, and I, I was awakened uh, by my wife's elbow. Uh, you know how that works? It would be 12.30, guys, and all of a sudden you feel that little jab. And, and she said, there's a smoke detector battery going off. And I have decided, I have discovered that, that batteries and smoke detectors do not go dead except between the hours of 12 midnight and 3 a.m. Is that not the truth? And so this, this thing starts chirping, and then we have to play the game. You know the game where you walk around and you stand in front of one. Beep. Oh, that's not it. And then you go to the next one. Not it. And you walk around. I was convinced it was one because I was half asleep. She was convinced it was another. Finally, we figured out it was this one uh, that is on the ceiling of the living room. Um, and so I climb on top of the couch. I take the, the smoke detector down. Um, I carry it back into our, uh, into our bathroom, our bedroom area, and try to figure out, you know, half asleep what to do. So I take the batteries out, put new batteries in, keeps chirping. Think, okay, maybe that's a dead set of batteries. I, I, I go back upstairs, try not to wake up the boys, come back down, change a new set of batteries, keeps chirping. At that point, I'm ready to just take the batteries out, throw it in the garage, and forget it, but I'm thinking, no, I can't do that because it's a smoke detector. That's not very safe. And so here I am on Google in the middle of the night trying to figure out this particular smoke detector, finally figure it out. You know, I could have just silenced the thing. I could have just thrown it away, but you know what? What, what good would that have done me? 
I might have ignored the alarm, but it wouldn't have solved the problem. It would have instead set me up for a greater danger. It doesn't remove the danger to ignore the signal. We can see the warning signs in our nation. We can see the warning signs even sometimes in our own home when it comes to marriage, when it comes to the family, but just ignoring them doesn't make it go away. We need the Lord. We need His power. We need His Word. We need His hand and His wisdom to guide us if we ever expect to see our homes restored to what He wants them to be. And so that is the subject that I want us to look at over the next few weeks is is how can we live the way Christ wants us to live in our homes? How can we be husbands and wives and dads and moms and grandparents, the, the people who God has called us to be? And so let's start with this question. Why in the world do people even get married? What is the point of marriage? Why do people choose it? You know, if we were to go back and look through Scripture and examine the reasons why people get married, why did God create marriage, I think we could come up with a lot of different explanations. We might say uh, that God created marriage for the purpose of companionship. You go back to Genesis and you're going to read that Adam was alone. There was not a helper fit for him. And so God creates Eve, brings them together. There is that joyous moment where Adam said, this is at last flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone and marriage is created. We could also say that God created marriage for the purpose of reproduction, to fulfill that command there where it said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Or maybe God gave us marriage for, the, for the, uh, the purpose of shared responsibility so that a man or a woman wouldn't have to go at it alone, but instead they could join together and the two could become one. You know, if we went to the mall or we went to Walmart or we went out in public and we asked that question, why in the world do people get married? What is the whole point of marriage? You probably would get a variety of answers there too. Some people would say they got married because grandma expected them to. Because they, they said, well, you know, everybody else is getting married, so I guess I better go find me someone and get married too. Some people might tell you they got married for financial reasons because it's easier for two people to live together, you know, in one income as, as opposed to separately. You know, you get a better tax rate. You're going to have someone to inherit your property, all that kind of stuff. I, I've, I've heard those reasons, those excuses from people when they told me why they wanted to get married. Well, it was for tax reasons. Some people will tell you they get married for emotional. They want emotional fulfillment, to be relationally fulfilled, romantically fulfilled. They say, we're in love. We just, they complete me. I think that they make me happy. In fact, I think that's a majority of what you would hear. But you know what? When I study the Word of God, what I have come to believe is that God's primary goal for our marriage was not to make me happy. It was not to make me feel fulfilled, but to make me feel whole. God's primary goal and purpose in marriage was to make me holy, to mold me and to shape me more into the image of Jesus Christ. I believe God has given us marriage and has given us the family for the purpose of sanctification as a means of making us more like Him, to be as like it's a spiritual discipline of sorts, to go through life as husband and wife, to go through life as mom and dad, that those acts make us more like Jesus when we live according to His Word. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. I want us to take a little different look at this passage today. 
Most of the time when we look at it, we simply will focus on the two commands that are given here to husbands and wives, but I want us to look at the whole picture of this passage, all right? And see how God is doing this. He's calling us to sanctification. He's calling us in our actions, our thoughts, our words, our motives to be more like His Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 22 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church." because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, you might look at that and say, okay, well, hey, the big point of that is those two commands, love cherish or love, respect, love, submit, those things. Um, but let me help you kind of see the bigger context here. If we were to go back to Ephesians chapter 4, which we won't have time to do today, but if we were to read all of Ephesians 4 and then go all the way through Ephesians 5, what you would find is that what Paul is trying to do through the power of the Holy Spirit is to explain to us how to walk in the Spirit. In this whole section, he's trying to show us how we can live with Spirit-filled obedience. In fact, at least four times that I found, and maybe I missed one, but if you go all the way back to, to Ephesians 4 and go all the way through Ephesians 5, you're going to find at least four times where Paul is going to say, walk in a certain way, and then he's going to give you practical ways that you do so. For instance, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Then he gives some practical advice. Verse 17 of that same chapter. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their mind. Then he gives some practical advice. Chapter 5, verse 2. And walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Then he gives us some more practical advice. And then we come to verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. And so he, he keeps giving us these walking commands. How do we walk in the Lord? How do we walk in the Spirit? How do we walk in obedience to Christ's commands? And so when we get to verse 22, I don't want us to look at it as a separate section, as something totally different, like Paul has suddenly taken a turn and gone different, different path. Instead, all he's doing is, is telling us, how can we walk with the Lord in our husband and wife relationship? He's telling us this is how you live by the Spirit in your home. This is how walking with the Lord plays itself out in your home. He's emphasizing that He wants our family life to be sanctified just like our work life, just like our personal life, just like our thought life. 
I mean, nowhere in here do you see, do this and you'll be happy. Instead, you see, do this and you will be holy. Now, let's think for a second about verse 22 and 20 through 33 specifically. Sometimes we look at those, that passage and the whole submit and love thing, and some people will get bent out of shape because of those commands. I've heard it before, especially when it comes to that wives submit to your husband's command. People do not like that. They'll tell you it's, old, it's outdated, it's archaic. Um, they'll tell you, you know, you Christians, y'all are so behind. This is 2019. That's not how we do it nowadays. Um, but let's just commit, let's just consider these two commands very briefly. It, it says in verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And so immediately, Paul connects how wives should relate to husbands to how they relate to the Lord. He immediately draws that comparison to the the Lord and to His church. Look in verse 24. He says, Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And so he's connecting. He's saying, Wives, to walk in the Spirit, this is how you live in your home, just like the way that you walk with the Lord. He's drawing that comparison, that that this is how you walk in the Lord. And he, he, he compares that there. He says, He says that a wife's submission is just like the church and how she submits to Christ. But I would also give you this other example. Who is the greatest example of submission in the entire Scripture? Thank you. Jesus. The Son of God, who has been eternally equal with the Father, yet who did what? Surrendered His will and submitted Himself to the will of the Father being willing to go even to the point of death on a cross because it was the Father's will for him to do so. And so wives are called to imitate the Lord in their homes. Now husbands don't get off the hook. Verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And so husbands get that command there too, to love their wives. But it's not just, hey, husbands, love your wives. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Once again, he's calling on men to imitate the Lord, to be more like Christ in the way that they treat their spouse. And so marriage is not something we promote just because it's good for society. Marriage is not something that we promote just because it's a good thing for kids to grow up in. Marriage is a holy endeavor. It is a work of sanctification. You know, God uses a lot of different ways to make us more like Jesus. But for those who are married, I believe maybe the most powerful tool He has is our marriage. That through the act of marriage... He transforms us. He reveals to us our faults. He reveals to us our failings. And He makes us more into the image of Christ. And so for us, we must then approach our marriage with the goal being not my happiness, but my holiness. That as I pursue my wife, my desire is not just to get what I want and to be fulfilled myself, but my desire is to honor my Lord and to be transformed more into His image. Now this is why this matters. This is why this whole, this whole thought process matters because the way we view our marriage determines the way we live out our marriage. I mean, if all I'm after in marriage is my happiness, 
then it's all going to be about me. And as soon as my happiness begins to fade, what's going to happen? I'm going to walk away. I think we see that a lot today. But if my marriage is about my holiness and being made more like Jesus Christ, I'm going to be more willing to walk through hardship because I know that through it, Jesus is transforming me. I want us to consider something that I think will help you to get this. Look down in chapter 5, verse 31. Now, this is a quotation of Genesis 2.24, which is also quoted by Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, verse 5. In in Ephesians 5.31, Paul writes, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, or cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You can see that's an exact quotation of what was said in Genesis 2.24, right after that moment in which Adam received Eve, and he said, This at last is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. And she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And it was that glorious first wedding ceremony. And God declared, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now that word cleave there is a very strong Hebrew term in the Old Testament. And it was a term that was often used to refer to covenant relationships. Now you've probably heard that said before that we have a covenant Marriage And that covenant in the Bible, any covenant in the Bible was a solemn vow between two individuals, between two groups in which they were called upon to, to live out that vow even if it was painful, even if, if it was not pleasant, even if it cost them something. In fact, the good of the vow was more important than the happiness of the parties. That even if I had to go through hardship... I was expected to uphold that vow because I had made it, even if it was costly. You know, oftentimes when we speak about the covenant of marriage and we say that we're coming together in the covenant of marriage, you've heard that in a, in a wedding ceremony, I'm sure, but I'm afraid that's not how we look at marriage often. I don't think so often we look at it as a covenant relationship. I think sometimes, way too often for many, they look at it as a consumer relationship. I mean, just think about this for a second. Uh, to be a consumer, a consumer relationship means that there's two parties that have come together for the benefit of one another, right? And, and each gains something from it. And when one quits benefiting, what do they do? They walk away from it, right? Take, for instance, um, we, have a, we, we go grocery shopping at Kroger. Kroger's right around the corner. That's our grocery store. We always go there 99.9% of the time we buy our groceries at Kroger unless Nana brings them over, and that's about the other, time, the other percent of the time. Um, and now, I did not, when I walked into Kroger the first time, I did not walk in and say, I thee take thee Kroger to have and to hold from this day forward, and I will always buy thee groceries from thee. You know, I, I didn't say that. I, I didn't make a vow. No, it's a consumer relationship. They provide me with groceries at what I figure is mostly fair prices, and I provide them with business and income so that they turn a profit, right? That's a consumer thing. And so everything is good. Uh, and, but you know what? If they were to suddenly raise their prices, I would not feel guilty in, this, in the least to walk away and go buy my groceries somewhere else. If another grocery store opened up that beat their prices, I would not feel guilty at all because that's how consumer relationships go. So long as both parties are benefiting, you stick to it. Or take it like this. Most of you... I would say most of you, some of you aren't like this, most of you um, have a consumer relationship with your car. 
Now, some of you love your car and you would never give it up and you have some particular old car that you keep and I understand that and there's nothing wrong with that. But most of you have a consumer relationship with your car. In other words, it gets you somewhere. You like it. It's, it's a good car and it's, it's okay. But you would have no problem trading it in if it kept breaking down. You would walk away from it. You'd say, it's no longer benefiting me. I'm gone. I'm done. I'm moving on to something else. That's a consumer relationship. For some, marriage has become a consumer relationship in which they will stick with it so long as they're getting what they want. But as soon as they stop getting what they want, the fulfillment, the joy, the happiness, the romance, whatever it is, as soon as they stop getting what they want, what do they do? They, they walk away from it. They abandon it. They forget the vow. As soon as their wife is no longer as physically attractive or somebody else comes along who is more attractive or more relationally connected or has more in common, they say, forget about the vow. You know what? I'm not getting what I want here. I want to go over here where I'm going to get more of what I want. That's not a covenant. That's not treating marriage like a covenant. It's treating marriage like a consumer. But when we get... That God gave us marriage as a covenant for the purpose of transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. Then we understand that my pursuit of Christ is directly tied to my pursuit of my wife. That the, the health of my relationship with Christ is directly tied to the health of my relationship with my Lord. In fact, that's exactly why God gave me a wife. Look in verse 32, Ephesians 5:32. After all that discussion about husbands and wives and what they are to do and all that stuff and all that connection to how Christ did those things, he says, this mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In other words, the entire reason that God gave us marriage was to point us to him, was to give us a picture, a model of the relationship between Christ and his church. Gary Thomas, the guy who wrote a book named Sacred Marriage, the guy who also wrote the Bible study we're going to be doing with the marriage study tonight, Cherish, said this. He said, God did not create marriage just to give us a pleasant means of repopulating the world and providing a steady societal institution for the benefit of humanity. He planted marriage among humans as another signpost pointing to his own eternal spiritual existence. Marriage points us to Jesus because it shows us the relationship between Christ and His people. He gave us marriage to point us to Him, to make us more like Him, to call, cause us to love Him more. And that changes everything. Because when I see the true purpose, the true meaning of marriage, then I understand that when I come into a relationship with my wife, it is not, first of all, a covenant between two parties. It is a covenant between three parties. That I did not stand in a, in a, at Faith Baptist Church on June 26, 2004 and profess my love to my wife alone. I professed my love and my vows to my wife and my Lord at the same time. That when I made that covenant, I was entering into an agreement not only with my wife, but also with my God. And so when I break that covenant, I'm not only breaking my relationship with my wife, but I'm also breaking my relationship with my Lord. And when I walk away, if I were to ever walk away from my wife, which I never would, in a sense I would be walking away from my commitment to the Lord. You cannot pursue the Lord and not be pursuing your spouse. It's not possible. 
that if you're in a marriage relationship, you cannot be walking closely with the Lord and at the same time be walking away from your spouse. You cannot be faithful to the Lord and not be faithful to your spouse. It changes the way we see marriage, but I would also say it changes the way I see myself. Because when I understand that God created marriage to make me more like Jesus, it reminds me I'm not there yet. That I am not perfect. Marriage humbles me. I mean, the truth is marriage is hard work, is it not? I mean, I've never met someone who said marriage was a breeze, that they never had any difficulties in marriage. Um, It is hard to live in peace and harmony with any other human being. I mean, it'll test you, it'll try you, it'll stretch you. There was a couple that wrote a book named Gary and Betsy Ricucci, and they said this, one of the best wedding gifts God gave you was a full-length mirror called your spouse. Had there been a card attached, it would have said, here's to helping you discover what you're really like. And I thought, how true is that? If marriage is all about my happiness and all about my fulfillment, then guess what happens whenever I begin to discover I'm not perfect? I want to run away from it. I want to walk away because I won't want to go through the trials of marriage because it's going to make me uncomfortable. And so rather than growing, I'll, I'll run then to go try to find someone else who's more compatible who just doesn't know my flaws yet. And that's exactly what happens so often in marriage. Couples hit rough patches, but rather than committing to grow in the Lord and together, one spouse walks away and puts all the blame on the other. Oh, it's just because they're like this. All because they refuse to be humble. Because they refuse to admit their faults. They refuse to allow God to use marriage to make them more like Christ. And like heavenly sandpaper in a sense. When we're in that relationship, it, God uses that to rub off the rough edges of our lives. But when you allow God to sanctify us through marriage, we must first admit that we need to be sanctified. But I would say also too, that when we understand marriage the right way, it changes how we view our spouse as well. I heard a story a while back about a bride who was extremely nervous on her wedding day. Uh, she just did not think she could make it down the aisle. She was, she was so scared of being in front of all those people. And, and as, the, as that hour drew closer, she just got more and more and more and more scared. And so her bridesmaids tried everything that they possibly could uh, to calm her down and nothing ever seemed to work. But then finally one of them said, okay, look, here's all you got to do. You know, when, when that bell chimes and the music begins to play, all you got to do is focus on three things. He said, look, first of all, the doors are going to open and just focus on that aisle that's right in front of you. And then, and, then, and then the bridesmaid said, okay, look, now once you begin to focus on the aisle, then all you're going to do is look slightly up and just begin to focus on that altar at the front of the church where that, the preacher's standing right there. Just focus on the altar and begin to walk toward the altar. She said, okay, I can do that. I can do that. And then, and, then, and, then, and then the bridesmaid said, okay, and as you're walking down the aisle, look over there uh, to your future husband. Just keep your eyes on him as you continue to walk, and that'll get you down the aisle. And so she said, okay, I can do this. Bell chimed, music began to play, doors threw open. But everybody was shocked as she began to walk. And all the audience didn't know what was going on when she began to say, I'll alter him. I'll alter him. I'll alter him. You know, that's how some of us come into marriage. They think they're perfect. <clears throat> some people walk into marriage and say, you know what, there's nothing I need to change about me. There's nothing in my life that needs to be changed. I just need to alter him. I just need to alter her. I just need to make 
him or her. You know, we even hear those words thrown around, you know, oh, you know, he's whipped or, or she's got him trained or he's got her trained and all those kind of things like that. And some people come in with that attitude. Hey, just give me some time and I'll make them, I'll make them right. I'll make it work. You know, others come into marriage and sometimes will we'll be duped into thinking that their new spouse is absolutely perfect. They think everything is going to be great and they come in with this idealized view that they are marrying Prince Charming and then all of a sudden they're disappointed when Prince Charming isn't so charming the next morning. You know, when you marry someone, you think you know them, but you don't. You really don't. And it doesn't take long before the rose-colored glasses will fall off and you realize that your new spouse is a messed up human being just like you. But then you got to live with them. Then you got to put up with their annoying habits. And so with that, many a spouse will begin then to try to alter their partner, to retrain their partner, only to become frustrated when they can't because their partner is trying to do the same thing to them. But when we come into marriage and understand that marriage is a tool that God uses to make us more like Jesus, it changes everything because we don't look at our spouse as a failure. We don't look at their faults and see problems, but instead we see a work of the Lord that's a work in progress. And instead we see that God is making them into His image. We stop looking at our spouse with frustration and with anger, and instead we turn to the Lord with expectation of what He's going to do. I heard someone say one time that that the mistake when we come into marriage is to look at our spouse as if they are a finished statue. Instead, we ought to look at them more like they're a hunk of marble which is being made into a statue. Not one that you make into a statue, but a statue that is being made by the Lord. And slowly but surely, He is taking away the bits and the pieces that don't need to be there and turning them into the person He wants them to be in Christ. It's said that Michelangelo, when he was carving, when he was making his statue David, people asked him, how in the world did you see David? How did you make that? And And it's reported that he said, I simply looked into the marble and took away what wasn't David. And that's what God is doing with us. That He's looking into the marble and He's chiseling away what's not Jesus in me. What's not Jesus in my wife. Tim Keller said, when we approach marriage this way, we say to our spouse, I see all your flaws, imperfections, weaknesses, dependencies. But underneath them all, I see a growing, the person God wants you to be. And let me tell you, that attitude will bring grace and mercy and forgiveness to your marriage. When you quit focusing on their flaws and instead look for how God is shaping them, it'll change everything. And we'll begin not to just love our spouse for who they are and what they do for us, but we'll begin to love them for who Jesus is making them. I want to close with something that my wife shared with me this past week that I thought was a perfect illustration of this. Um, Back in the 15th century in Japan, Potters and craftsmen were looking for a way to, um, to fix broken pots, but they wanted to do it in a way that looked nicer, the way that looked more pleasant. Um, and so they came up with this particular art form. I think we have a picture of it. And it's an art form called kintsugi. I hope I pronounced that right. Um, in which those cracks in the pottery were mended um, with gold dust and with resin. You can kind of see the line through there. That's not just paint. That's gold that's painted into, that was actually placed into that resin. And what resulted was not just a fixed pot, a fixed bowl. What's resulted was a piece of pottery that was more beautiful when it's finished than even when it began. 
I think that's the perfect representation of what God is trying to do with all of us and especially what He's trying to do with us in marriage. When we enter into marriage, we have flaws. And along the way, there's going to be chips in the pottery. There's going to be breaks. There's going to be things that, that happen that expose our weaknesses. But Jesus, in His grace, is mending us. And He's making us whole. And He's turning what was a mess into a masterpiece. And so when I look at my wife and when she looks at me, and I hope this is true of your relationship, that's how we must see each other. We must look at each other and not see the flaws, but instead we must see what Christ is doing in and through them and how He's making them into a masterpiece. Would you pray with me? Father God, we understand, we know that marriage is so vitally important to our, our homes, to our lives, to our churches, to our nation. But Father, I pray that we would understand that ultimately, for those of us who are called into the vow, the relationship of marriage, it's vitally important for our holiness, for the process of sanctification. God, I don't know, there may be someone here in this room who's in a relationship and they realize in this, in this moment, in this day, that they all they've ever really been after is their own happiness, their own fulfillment. They spend all their time pointing the, the, the finger of, at, the, at their spouse and trying to point out their flaws, and they realize that maybe, maybe someone realizes today that they've approached this whole thing wrong. husbands and wives here today who realize that they need to confess sin that they need to lay their hearts back at your feet and allow you to resume the process of making them holy of putting their marriage and their life back together or maybe there's someone here today who's not married and God bless them there's nothing that makes you less Christian the fact that you're not married doesn't make you less than at all. But Father, we know that you're sanctifying them as well, and maybe they realize that they're not walking the way they should. Father God, as we come to this time of invitation, if there's someone who needs to make a decision, repent of sin, turn to the Lord, come back to you, I pray that today would be that day. fall back into the arms of Jesus. And it's in Christ's name we do pray these things.